0: Now take your Bibles and turn to the last chapter of the Old Testament, which is Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, it's just six verses, but there are such riches in these six verses that we're not going to cover the whole chapter tonight, we're only going to look at verses 1 through 3. And so... Our text will be Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act. says the Lord of hosts. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Before we come to the exposition of God's Word, let's pray together once more. Father, teach us your ways, teach us from your Word, and may your Holy Spirit guide us as we consider uh, these words of Scripture. We pray that you'd cause them to go forth in power. To each of our hearts, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably heard the expression, there are only two kinds of people in the world. And you've probably heard people conclude that uh, assertion or that statement in a lot of different ways. And there are some, some very well-known uh, statements of that kind. There's a, a wonderful one by G.K. Chesterton. And one by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was the one who said, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God will say, thy will be done. And that really gets at the, uh, the spirit of this text we're looking at tonight. But people fill in that, uh, that little phrase, that little adage, lots of different ways. The categories that they'll assert are sometimes humorous two kinds of people in the world, and they'll make a joke out of it. Sometimes the statement is calculated to be cynical. Sometimes they're profound. But biblically speaking, and therefore authoritatively speaking, there truly are only two kinds of people. And we find those two kinds of people described in Psalm 1. And many of us here at First Scots in recent days have memorized together Psalm 1, and it speaks of two categories of people. And in the end, those two categories of people will be very clear, because the two categories are the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 1 speaks of the man who doesn't uh, walk in the counsel of the wicked or Stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And then it goes on to speak about the ungodly. And it speaks about the the outcomes of these two kinds of lives. And there aren't any more uh, categories. Just those two. And We encounter them here in Malachi in these opening verses of chapter 4. In the end, there's going to be the righteous and the wicked. In Malachi, they're described as the evildoers and those who fear the Lord. There is no third category. There's no middle ground. And these two categories have two distinct final states for eternity. Now, back in Malachi chapter 3, verse 14... Some of the people raised a complaint, and Malachi relates it to us in his prophecy here. Their complaint was basically that there was no accountability for evildoers, they weren't being made to answer for their wickedness. And then in uh, verse 18 of chapter 3, we have God's response to that complaint. And God affirms that judgment will come. And when judgment does come, the distinction between the categories of the righteous and the wicked will be made very, very clear and unmistakable to all people. And these three verses at the beginning of Malachi 4 are essentially a conclusion to the passage that we are last looking at in Malachi 3. In fact, the chapter division could almost be at the end of 4 3, because these are the wrap up to what we looked at previously. These verses speak of two outcomes one, for the arrogant and the evildoers. And you notice, if you look back at Malachi 3, verse 15, those are the categories, those are the words that are used there. God speaks of. Uh, or that God recounts the words of the people. They say, now we call the arrogant blessed, blessed. evildoers, not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So you've got the arrogant and the evildoers, again, here in in chapter 4, and they're going to have a certain outcome. And then you've got those who fear the Lord, which were spoken of back in, Verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another and the Lord paid attention and heard them. So again, you've got two categories of people and you have two outcomes. And the outcomes are, for the one, consuming fire and for the other, healing sunrise. This text teaches us it promises us that the wicked will perish, but those who take refuge in God will live. Three points to look at tonight correspond to the three verses of our text. And the first is we're going to see the demise of unrepentant sinners. And I chose that language very deliberately. The demise of unrepentant sinners. And secondly, the joyful salvation of those who fear the Lord. And finally, the triumph Of the church. So, in the first place, what we see in verse 1 is the demise of unrepentant sinners. Remember in chapter 3, there were these skeptics and they called into question God's righteousness. And they said, Evildoers prosper. People are putting God to the test and they're not paying the price for it, they're not being held accountable, they escape. And God answers those critics. In verse one, he says, "Behold, the day is coming." In other words, you can be sure of this; have no doubt. In uh, Psalm seventy-five, in verse two, God says, "At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity." God has a day; He's got a set set date on which He will finally judge all the wicked. You and I don't know when it is, but God has set a time. We don't know when it will be, but we do have a little bit of a description of what it's going to be like right here in our text. We have a description of what it's going to be like because God himself describes it for us. And for the wicked, he says, the day is going to be a day of burning, The day is coming, burning like an oven. And this fiery imagery is not unique to this one text. I'm sure you know that. Over and over again in the Scripture, the judgment of God and his retribution against his enemies and against the righteous is described in terms of fire. So in Psalm 21.9, it says, You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. You see the use of the term oven there as well. Not just any fire, but fire of an oven. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. And someone might be inclined to say, well, you know, that's Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God was a God of wrath. Well, listen to this from the New Testament. Second Thessalonians. Chapter 1, starting in verse 7, where it says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So the fiery imagery doesn't end with the Old Testament. It carries on all the way through the New because it's true. It speaks of something that is going to happen without doubt and when it says this burning day is going to be like an oven i think that speaks to an especially intense fire fire that's been prepared in an oven with lots of wood for fuel and it's been fanned to become as hot as possible that kind of fire and in the midst of that kind of Maximumly intense fire. The arrogant are described as being stubble. Think of it. They're not described as being like a like like wood or, or or a green log. You know, if you've put a fire in your fireplace or tried to start a fire when you're camping or something, you know, sometimes it takes a while for the wood to catch fire, and if it's damp, it's especially difficult and takes a lot of time, Or I was thinking of uh, when when you, I was thinking of two kinds of paper, just to contrast, just to make this contrast. When I was a kid, my parents had a subscription to the local newspaper, and we would sometimes take leftover newspapers and roll them up, and then tie them in a roll with twine, and so you kind of had a homemade fire log, and we could put that in the fire and burn it. And when you've got paper like that, and it's, it's, especially when it's rolled tightly together, sometimes it takes that as long to catch fire as it would a log. Now contrast that with the stuff we sometimes pull out of the shredder down in the office. I don't know if you have a shredder at home or if you have one at work, but you put paper in the shredder and it shreds the paper into these little tiny bits. If you take that and put that on a fire, how long does it take that to catch that's kind of what chaff is like. Chaff, or stubble, as it says in our text, it ignites instantly, and it's instantly consumed. And this day that is coming, that God's talking about here in Malachi 4.1, is going to consume evildoers. It's going to set evildoers ablaze in that same way. It says it will leave them neither root nor branch. Speaks of total destruction. No remnant. No hope. Or, like it says in the end of Psalm 1 the way of the wicked will perish. So what God is telling us here through his prophet Malachi is that unrepentant sinners will get perfect and absolute justice in that day. And as I said, I chose the language unrepentant sinners deliberately because, as you probably know, uh, scripture tells us that all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners in and of ourselves. But Unrepentant sinners will meet the demise described here in verse 1. And I say that because there is a different destiny awaiting those who repent. There's a different destiny awaiting those who have faith and who fear the Lord. And that's what verse 2 speaks of. Verse 2 speaks of the joyful salvation of those who fear the Lord. And you have that wonderful and uh, glorious word, at the beginning of verse 2, but... I've seen people wear t-shirts that say, but God. Because you have that phrase so many times in Scripture where a passage of Scripture might speak woe upon those who have rebelled against God, those who have sinned against Him, those who have broken His law, and what such people deserve. And then the Scripture says, but God. One of the greatest examples is Philippians, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, where it talked about the fact that we're dead in sins and trespasses. We're children of wrath, just like the rest. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy. And it goes on to proclaim good words, good news, gospel to us. And that's what this passage proclaims as well. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But you who fear my name, God says. And when he says, you who fear my name, to fear the name of the Lord is to be a person who has repented and put their faith in him. And as we understand it in in New Testament terms, is to have put your faith in Jesus Christ and repented from your sins. And verse 2 talks about and announces the stark contrast in outcomes for those who repent as opposed to the wicked, as opposed to those who are unrepentant. And what does that same day, the same day that's coming, burning like an oven when the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble, what's in store for those who fear the Lord? It says that the sun of righteousness shall rise. If that phrase has a little bit of a familiar ring, it's because this verse is where we get that line from the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. It's Jesus. It's our Savior. Now Malachi's audience wouldn't have understood it with that same fullness of understanding that you have because you have the advantage of the New Testament scriptures. But what they would have understood is this imagery of light dawning on them, of being brought out of darkness into light and the fact that somehow that coming light was going to be accompanied with righteousness that would be conveyed to them. It, the, the sun of righteousness rises with healing in its wings, wings being the rays of the sun. And that healing imagery is so rich. It's such gospel imagery. And we see it in the, even in the Old Testament. Listen to a couple of passages where this, this idea of healing proclaims gospel to us, even in the Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 103, verse 3, remember where we're told to bless the Lord and forget not all of his benefits. In verse 3, says, he's the one who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Or in Exodus 15, verse 26, God proclaims to his people Israel. He says, I am the Lord, your healer. I am Yahweh Rapha. I am the one who heals you. Or listen to this because you're gonna hear you're gonna hear foreshadowings of the New Testament here. You're gonna hear foreshadowings of the book of Revelation, because in Ezekiel chapter forty seven, verse twelve, Ezekiel's describing this vision that God showed him He's, it's it's the new Jerusalem, it's the new temple and it's it's Really, the new creation its the new heavens and the new earth. And he says, on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Revelation 22, where the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations? healing and the healing ministry of Jesus and the healing ministry of the apostles after him displayed gospel power the people that Jesus healed during his earthly ministry you know that they eventually died right the people that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul healed, they eventually died too. This was the healings, the, even these miraculous supernatural healings where they, they alleviated the, the, the ailments of people's physical bodies, it didn't give them life that went on in perpetuity in this present age. Those people eventually died. But that healing that they were able by the Holy Spirit to, to work in the bodies of people was intended to display the power of the gospel and that full and final healing that comes in the age to come. Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Isn't that happy imagery? The NIV uses the word frolic I remember back in seminary, we had a a group of kids, a group of children of seminary students, and there was a certain day of the week where families, moms, would bring their kids together, and the kids all just got to play for a while. I had this wonderful picture from one of those days, and it's... um, a large group of these kids, and, and you know, these kids our sons have stayed friends with over the years, but they're all little at the time, and they're playing soccer or something. They, and there's, you can see the ball, and they're all running after the ball, and they're all smiling, and they look so joyful. They look like they're having such a wonderful time. And to me, I look at that picture, and it seems like a, a, a foretaste of heaven. The kids running, joyfully playing. And that's the image here of this, this calf, a calf leaping from the stall. This is a picture of freedom, safety. This calf is in a pasture somewhere, protected. It's a picture of abundance. This calf is well-fed, a picture of joy. One commentator wrote, The pastoral imagery of well-fed calves romping playfully in the pasture conveys a sense of joy and freedom for the righteous in the day of the Lord. That's what this is all about. That's the message that's being conveyed here. Salvation is a state of total wellness. a, A state of joy or To borrow the words of Jesus Christ, it's a state of abundant life. Or to use Old Testament language, it's a state of shalom. Full-orbed wellness and prosperity and blessing and peace. And that's a description of the joyful salvation of those who fear the Lord. And then in verse 3 we have a description of and a promise of the triumph of the church. Now verse 3 is still speaking to those who fear the Lord. Look at it again. And you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The idea of treading down conveys the sense of a total mastery, a defeat of one's foes, and you get language like that in many places in scriptures, especially the Psalms. So, for instance, in Psalm 44, verse 5, the psalmist says, Through you, Lord, we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. So that treading down is, is victory over one's enemies. And then there are two verses, and you could give many, many other examples, but I'll just give you these um, and I'll mention Psalm 60, verse 12, and then Psalm 108, verse 13, but I only have to read it once because it, s- it says the exact same thing. Uh, it says, With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. God is our champion. Um, now, so this, this idea of treading foes down o- occurs numerous times in the Old Testament, but it so happens that the word used here in Malachi 3 the Hebrew word only occurs here. It's only used this one time in all the Old Testament, and this particular word uh, carries with it a meaning of to press or to crush. And it says, you'll tread down your foes for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. So the wicked, these unrepentant sinners that were spoken of in verse 1 are going to be like ashes because they're like chaff, and it they're put into that furnace, and they'll be burned entirely, completely destroyed. Now, ultimately, this is the work of God, and we see that at the end of verse 3. There'll be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So it's God's work, but we, His people, are beneficiaries of that work. And by His grace we share in that victory that he achieves. Which is why it's so uh, poignant and and telling and encouraging. When we get to Romans chapter 16, verse 20, turn there with me. Because you know, in the, uh, in the, what we call the proto-evangelion, when God is pronouncing curses on the serpent and on the man and on the woman, and on the earth even. But he promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we understand that that seed of the woman was ultimately Christ. He was the one that came, and he did crush the head of the serpent. And now Satan is in this state of dying and going to his eternal demise. But Christ, we know, is the one who crushes Satan's head crushes the head of the serpent. But look at what Romans 16, verse 20 says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So when we see in Malachi chapter 4 of uh, God speaking of us treading down the wicked, and them being like ashes under our feet, I think it's the same thing, the same idea, that, that Christ is our champion, he's the one who gets the victory, he's the one who treads down our foes, but we partake, we, we partake of the benefits at the very least. It doesn't mean we're supposed to go out and militantly destroy evil people, no, this is, we, we don't war against flesh and blood, we war against principalities and powers and and the wickedness in, in the heavenly places, powers of darkness so it's a spiritual battle in which we are engaged but ultimately there will be a complete and total victory won by Christ and we will share in the results of that Psalm 118 verse 7 says the Lord is on my side as my helper I shall look in triumph on those who hate me, that's what Malachi is talking about In 4.3. The victory is the Lord's. But we will see it. We will enjoy it. Because the the book of Revelation. The the, the ladies Bible study recently went through the book of Revelation together. Uh, The book of Revelation is all about the triumph of the church. In fact that's what the Bible is all about. The whole scriptures. Are about the triumph of Christ and his church. Christ is the victor, and we're victorious with him. Now, in this present age, good and evil are locked in this perpetual struggle. Christ's kingdom warring against the kingdom of Satan, and Satan and his kingdom warring against Christ's kingdom. And from our perspective, the outcome often seems uncertain. We're just looking at it with the eyes of flesh. It seems like there's no way of telling who's got the upper hand. The outlook sometimes seems grim. But these few verses from Malachi assure us that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. These few verses from Malachi assure us that regarding final outcomes, there are only two. And the scripture broadcasts the same message from cover to cover. The Lord Jesus stressed this. Again, there's no third category. When Jesus spoke of two places you can build. You can build your house on the rock or you can build it on the sand. He spoke of two kinds of trees. A healthy tree that bears good fruit and a diseased tree that bears bad fruit. He preached a parable about, if I can use the the King James language, the wheat and the tares. The parable of the weeds, we call it a man planted good seed in his field, but the enemy came and sowed weeds. Wheat grew up and so did the weeds. Jesus, when he describes the day of judgment himself, he talked about separating the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Two categories. The book of Revelation describes people who are of this world and those who are not of this world. There's no third category. Either you will remain unrepentant in your sins and meet your demise, or you will fear the Lord and have eternal life. So which will it be? You have to choose. We're all familiar with the words of Joshua 24:15 where Joshua tells the people of Israel, choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I bet many of you have a little something on your wall with those words. It's a wonderful thing for a Christian family or a Christian person to put on the wall of their home. Choose this day whom you will serve. And what Joshua was telling, we, we sometimes leave this part of the verse out, but, and I just did, but Joshua was telling the people, choose whatever God you want to serve. If you want to serve the God Gods that your fathers served beyond the river? Serve them. If you want to serve the gods of the Canaanites, serve them. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the same choice is before every one of us. You can choose to serve any God you want. And people do. People serve any number of lords and masters, any number of idols and gods. But when Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve, I think part of what he was conveying or what what I've gotten out of the passage recently is, today choose which God you'll serve, but you don't get to choose what God will judge you in the last day. That choice doesn't belong to you. That choice has already been made. That choice is set because there's only one true and living God and he's the one who will judge the living and the dead in the day that is coming, burning like an oven. Think on that. Think on him as you choose this day whom you will serve. You know, there were some people in Malachi's day that were skeptical. They were skeptical, skeptical about this promised coming day. But I want, I want to just Try to impress something upon you here. You know, skepticism is nothing new. Skepticism is nothing modern. There's nothing scientific about it, really. There's certainly nothing progressive about being a skeptic. There have been skeptics expressing doubt about a final coming judgment from ancient times. Peter addresses skeptics, Malachi does. There were skeptics in Noah's day. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. People didn't listen to him. They didn't believe that judgment was coming. Skepticism is popular. I say skepticism is easy. And usually, maybe not always, but skeptics are usually pretty smug, pretty self-satisfied. But consider these words from Malachi, and let me assure you, that the wicked will perish in the judgment. But those who take refuge in God will live. In the day of judgment, there will be only two kinds of people. Those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who will wish they had. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for extending to each of us, for extending to all the free offer of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hold fast to you. We look forward to that glorious day, that glorious day when the son of righteousness rises with healing in its wings, and the joy and the peace and the safety and the eternal bliss of your kingdom of glory. Oh Lord, may we each have a part in that, and we ask it in your name. Amen.